if I am going to start in the New Testament and try to understand this idea of the Son of God who is called Jesus of Nazareth and defined as the Christ enters into this world, I get into Matthew chapter 1 and it's a genealogy, and I get into Luke chapter 3 and it's a genealogy, or 2, it's a genealogy. Now, in America, for most American Christians, if you're on a daily Bible reading plan and you say, I'm going to get through the whole Bible in a year, typically as you do that, when you hit certain sections of the Bible, one is genealogies, you usually think, okay, this is a pass. I can just skim through it or just skip it, and then I'll get to the good stuff. Okay, a few of you are not your heads. You do that. I, I, I still want to do that, even though I know that's a bad way to read it. But I'm looking out here, a church largely made up of, and I'm eyeballing you guys, it's young couples, and then there's a few of us with gray hair, and I'm guessing all of us with gray hair, our grandparents. So in both our recent memory, whether we have gray hair or whether we're young, in our recent memory is what happens when your son or daughter tells you you've met someone, they've met someone they love and they're coming home for the first time. If you're the young person, you're thinking, how do I introduce this person who I love to my parents? and really try to represent them in the best possible light. And I've done that in the past, and now I'm at the stage in life where it's my kids bringing somebody home, and honestly, when it's my boys bringing a girl home, I'm thinking, oh, I know him well enough to know that, what in the world did this beautiful girl find in my son? I don't know as much as she does. But when it's my daughter bringing somebody home, I'm thinking, Oh, boy. He better be a really fine young man. He better have a good family. And we're going to probe into the genealogies. Well, I'm going to look at a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And as I think as I do that, the, the title we've said is Family Matters. Welcome to the Story of Humanity. I think it's Matthew, by the power of the Holy Spirit, trying to say, Hey, God's people, this is a really big deal. The Son of God is entering into the world. This is who he is. But let me tell you who you are. And you really need to pay attention to him. He's bringing light, and it's not going to be found in the ways that you typically find it. I read from Holman's, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Matthew makes his point really clear from the very beginning. If you study literature, you know that basically you have an introduction and a conclusion to every well-written document. Matthew has his. The main point is this Jesus of Nazareth, this man named Jesus who is going to be born in Bethlehem and grow up in Nazareth and start a movement that's going to change the world. You cannot miss. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One of God. And there's given several things that are historical about him. First, he's the son of David. And if you know Israel's history, David is seen as the ideal king. And Jesus represents this, the idea of what is an ideal king like? What is the ideal ruler like? And he's not just one of kings or one of rulers of humanity. He's the ideal one. He's the king of all kings. 
Secondly, it said he is the son of Abraham. And if you know the Old Testament history, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. If the nation of Israel will become the Jews. And Jesus of Nazareth is a true descendant of the father of the nation. He's literal. He is the hope of the nation. Now, if you're somebody who is a fairly thoughtful person, and you read through the Bible, and you read through it with critical eyes, and maybe you have some periods of doubt, when you get to certain portions of Scripture, there's going to be some things that you're going to say, oh, this is a bit inconsistent. This doesn't quite make sense. In the outline, we've got a Matthew chapter 1. There's 14 generations from Abraham to David. There's 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon. And there's 14 generations from the Babylon exile to Christ. And then if you hop over to Luke, you get a very different story. Some of the things match up, some do not. If you're an Old Testament scholar, you can read through and find, oh, somebody got inserted there and somebody got skipped over here. And For textual critics, look at, oh my. And if you're somebody who wrestles with belief, it can be a point where you go, okay, what do I do with this? I want to believe, but here I find an inconsistency. I'm going to give you how I look at this stuff. And you'll have to figure out if this makes sense to you or if you want another way to look at it. I am not smart enough to memorize all the portions of Scripture I should memorize. I wish I could tell you that I could recite the Bible from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, and I didn't need a book to keep referring to. I wish I was that smart. So what I do is I keep reading, and I find memory tricks. And some have pointed out these 14 generations divided by three times might be a good memory trick so that a good Jewish young man or young woman can quickly memorize this and say, okay, at least I can do 14 times 3. That's 52. I can give you 52 names. And it makes me think today, even as we're trying to wrestle with, what do we do with a Bible that sometimes is such a different document? Is to find ways that we can put some memories on it so we can tell stories well, because I believe our culture is hungry for it. We're going to particularly see they're hungry during December. Now, let me hop into this genealogy, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I'm going to focus on a few individuals and tell their stories. In the world where I once lived, in Africa, when a young man came to meet a young woman's family, and he would come with his entire family to eventually say, this is the girl I've fallen in love with. I want to marry her. And he'd stand before her extended family, and he'd particularly stand before her dad and her grandparents, her grandfather, and all of her uncles. And he'd have to persuade all of them that he was worthy of their daughter's love, affection, and life. A wise man on the father's side would stand up and tell the whole story of the family's history. One of the interesting things that would happen is if there was ever a king, if there was ever a military leader, a governing leader, somebody who was really smart, a university professor, a successful business person, you'd make sure all those stories got inserted in. If there was ever a criminal, 
somebody had done something embarrassing, all of that got deleted from the story. And something that is tragic, and I think it's part of our human nature, generally women would only get mentioned, maybe your mom, maybe your grandma, maybe great-grandmother, but pretty much disappeared after that. The Jewish culture was similar. Where the stories that are going to be told are going to be the stories of men. And women are going to get deleted from the story. When Matthew starts writing, he inserts the name of four women, of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and one will be called Uriah's wife. We won't even say her name, Bathsheba. I'm looking at the audience, and we've got some little kids here. Let me be frank. These stories, I hope you'll go home and read them. They're life-changing. They're very similar. If you get out of the cultural heritage and say, okay, actually they look a lot like our messed up lives. They're really like, for movie ratings, they're like PG-13 to R. This probably needs to be a G to PG sermon. So let me try to do the best I can with it. You get this list, and the first one that gets mentioned is Tamar. Chapter 1, verse 3. If you want to read her story, it's in Genesis chapter 38. The story is told that a man named Judah, who's one of the twelve sons of Israel, or Jacob, gets married, has three sons. His sons hit the age of marriage. His firstborn son marries a woman named Tamar. And the son's evil and nice. Then the second son... This is more cultural. I, I hope as I'm saying this, this is how do different cultures wrestle with vulnerability? The culture of the day would be, but this may be unpleasant, but generally women were very vulnerable. And in the ideal world, when a man dies, his wife will get inherited to his brother so that she is protected and cared for. And in that process, she becomes another wife, and she's supposed to have children, but the children are not counted as the child of the second brother. They're counted as the child of the first. So if the first brother had property, when those child children grow to adulthood, they get the property. I hope that makes some measure of sense. But it's kind of different than how we would handle things here. But let me add this. We still deal with vulnerable people. We deal with chaos. We deal with tragedy. We deal with single moms. And I think if we were to walk through this text and say, what are the principles? We could find some living principles here. Judah's first son dies. Tamar's the wife. She's left and childless. Judah tells his second son, go take Tamar as your wife. And as he does that, he refuses to have a child. Because I think he just wants to use Tamar for his pleasure. And he wants his brother's property. Saying that, for those of us that are in our teens to older and have lived through the world, we know how human beings can look at others and try to acquire property, and we know how the world can look at women and say, they're just to be used for pleasure. That's what the second son does. As he does that, God's word says he's killed. He's done a wicked thing. And Judah looks, he's got a third son, and he's thinking, this woman, Tamar, has been married to two of my sons, and both of them are dead. 
And he hits the paranoid, fearful button in his life, and he starts to plot and scheme. And he thinks, I'm not going to let my third son marry this woman, Tamar. And he sends her away with a, a lie that when the son is old enough, he's going to let him marry. Tamar goes, was probably years, waiting for this to work itself out. And then realizes, I've been tricked. I've been deceived. I have no children. And the worst possible fate that I can have is to be childless in my old age. And she goes and she tricks Judah into making her pregnant. She pretends that she's a prostitute and takes Judah's singlet, which I would, in old days, I would say, oh, that's like his, his stamp of his business. I was trying to think through what today this would be like. Is it like some app on your mobile phone? I don't know. It's a way to identify guys. I'm not old enough to figure out what would be. But she tricks him. She's got a little bit. Judah sends back a goat, which is to pay for the prostitution, and she's gone. And I think what he does is he hopes, this. I hope this never comes back to Instead, months later, Tamar is found to be pregnant. And Judah becomes enraged that his daughter-in-law is pregnant and she's not married. And she's going to bring all of this dishonor on the family. And he has, tells the crowd, bring her out, let's burn her. And she produces his signet. I might say a few years ago, his business card, his business stamp, and says, this is the man. Judah says she's more righteous than I. Maybe. Matthew, when he weaves this first story in, the Jewish way of looking at things, and it's our human nature way of looking at things, at things, is we want to tell stories about ourselves, about our family, about our region, about our nation, where we human beings, the ones who generally have high measures of control, get to be the heroes of the story. Matthew inserts one story in, and he'll insert several, which will say, just the name says, we human beings aren't the heroes of this story. The second one that's mentioned is Rahab. Her story, if you want to read it, it's in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. And it's the story of the nation of Israel has now become a nation. They're not just a big extended family. They've lived in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, then they were released under the age of Moses, and they wandered for 40 years in the desert, and now they're entering into the promised land. Joshua is their leader. And they've entered into the region of a city called Jericho. And they need to figure out how they're going to defeat Jericho and take the land. Joshua chooses two spies to go into the city of Jericho to see what's there, and put to help him put together a plan to defeat Jericho so it will become part of the land of the nation of Israel. As he does that, and these are the places where maybe our human interpretation gets in the way. I've sat around with small groups and talked about why did those two spies, they got to spend a night in Jericho, why did they end up in a prostitute's home instead of like some local inn? I don't have a very high impression of these two spies' morality. My gut is they were probably really good at figuring out where the walls were laid out, probably good at figuring out how many soldiers are here, what are the military defense. 
But they probably looked at women similar to how Judah did. And they thought they had a few hours of autonomy. Whatever was their method or their reason for going to spend the night in Rahab's house, she realized pretty quickly who they were. And there was a conversation about what's coming. And Rahab repeats back that there is a fear that has come over all of the nations that are entering in, that the Israelites are entering into. There's been several military campaigns, and the Israelites have thoroughly defeated everyone, and there's a fear of what's coming. And though she is a woman whose living is a bit compromised and probably worships pagans and idols, she can recognize the hand of God moving and recognizes there's this creator God and this God favors Israel and knows where she stands. And she negotiates. And she goes beyond negotiating. She actually lies to protect these two spies. The rumors come that they're here and she has them hide on her roof and she tells the king they've ran out and she encourages the military to chase them out. And then she says, and remember me when the walls come down and your people come in here, save me. And don't only save me, save my father and my mother and all of my relatives. And they make a deal where they says, we will keep you safe if you will just have a red thread hanging out of the door. As little kids, you've heard the story. Joshua and the army marches around seven times in the seven days. And the seventh day, they scream and shout, and they march seven times, and the walls collapse, and the army takes over Jericho, and Rahab is kept safe. And I hope I'm being clear. I just even realized I missed this. This is the genealogy. This is the story of where does the Christ come from? He is fully God and fully human, but as the human portion, he's got... Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, and it's generations upon generations. The story is making sure you know there are these women in the story. That their very name or their very profession is embarrassing, but yet they are the most godly and honorable people in the story of our nation. And I think the point that Matthew is making is that God can use and honor a repentant sinner. And let me add this, if you've come to church today and you say, I want to explore this idea of Jesus, particularly during the Christmas season, and you're thinking, but boy, if these church people knew what my life was like, I'd have no hope here. Well, we read God's Word, and God's Word says that the most honorable persons many times are the ones that have the most embarrassing portions of their life. Because God looks at the repentant who's honest with Him and redeems their life. Our third woman who's mentioned is, is Ruth. And I will summarize her up with one word and then tell a story. She's a foreigner. When the Jews tell their stories of who they are as people, they like to represent themselves as people who are ethnically pure and chase their lineage all the way to David and Abraham and say there's nothing where we never mixed with another people. If you read humanity's history, in fact, if you read the United States history, if you read North Dakota history, we as human beings have a tendency to try to think that people like us are 
God's chosen ones were perfect. And to try to tell a story where we don't acknowledge how much intermingling there's been of our humanity with other people who are a bit different from us. This story is told because I think Matthew, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to insert a story so you realize, wow, here's a pagan woman who probably has the least embarrassing things in her whole life, and she's going to be probably the best model until we get to Mary and Jesus. The story is told in the book of Ruth of a woman named Naomi who's married to a man and has two sons, and they live in Judah, and a famine breaks out, and they're starving to death. They're agricultural people, people who live off of the land. So they move to the neighboring cousin people. Oh, you know, I'm going to be a little bit silly here. I grew up in Minnesota. I'd like to think Minnesota and North Dakota are similar, but I know there's nuances of difference. But I know, as a Minnesota Gopher fan, I'm not supposed to like people from Iowa and Wisconsin, even though I'd say we're both Midwesterners. In my mind, this would be like if a girl from North Dakota hopped over Minnesota and went and lived in Iowa for a period of time. Well, she's there. Naomi's two sons marry two women from Moab. And the Moabites, Moabites seem to acknowledge Yahweh as a creator God, but they throw a lot of idols at them. It's not a pleasant scenario. But at least they're alive. Then Naomi's husband dies, and then her two sons die. And she's a foreign woman with two daughter-in-laws in a foreign land where women have no rights. She's heard a rumor, Naomi has, that the famine is over, and she can go home. She calls her daughter-in-laws to her and says, go home. Go not to my home back to Judah. Go back to your father's house. I'm not going to have any more sons. I'm too old. You have no future with me. Perhaps in your father's house you'll get a second chance. These two young women have bonded with Naomi. They love her. They both weep. They don't want that message. One named Orpah finally listens to Naomi's counsel and goes home to her dad. Ruth stays. She weeps, she prays, and then she begs, negotiates, and gets stuck. She says, I will not leave. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. And Naomi eventually probably, and I can say this as somebody who's old, sometimes my kids, and even I'll say this, my, my daughter-in-law can wear a downward click. Naomi can say, Naomi and Ruth go back to Judah. Two widows, an old one, a young one, one foreign, going back poor. It's not a good situation. They get back, and the way the, the welfare system of Judah at this day, or Israel at this day, is that as grains being harvested, you leave some on the edges. You don't fully harvest the field, and then the poor can come and collect what's on the edges. Ruth starts to go to do that, and she ends up in the field of a man named Boaz. Boaz, as I'm reading this story, I get the impression he's a man who's done real well with money, done real well managing his farm, done real well managing his business, 
But I think he's probably socially a bit odd. There's something about him that he's hit a mature stage in life and he's not married, he doesn't have any kids, and that's odd for the day. But he is, though he's socially a bit odd, he's a God man. And he sees that Ruth is in the field with his workers, and he starts a conversation with her. And he acknowledges that he's heard the rumors about her. That she stayed loyal to Naomi, and Naomi's a distant cousin of his, and he's thankful for that. And Boaz is a man with authority, and he tells the men that are working in his field to protect Ruth and don't do anything ungodly to her. And even it tells me that Boaz knows the men that works for him, and he's probably thankful when they do a good job, but he doesn't fully trust them. He knows who they are. Naomi, or Ruth, has a good day, gathers the grain, goes home, tells Naomi about the good fortune, and Naomi says, well, Boaz is a distant relative. And old women do this. In fact, I do this as an old man. Every now and then, I'll see a cute girl, and I'll see my son, and thinking, oh, my, I wish my son would ask this girl out on a date. Or I'll... Just every now and then, not as nearly as frequently, I'll be with my daughter and I'll meet with some young man who's being very kind and respectful and he's going to school and he's working and I'm thinking, I wish someone like that would ask my daughter out on a date. Well, Naomi's old woman mind starts calculating and she goes, he's a distant relative. The process is somebody could redeem us. He might be the guy. And he's been God so she gives Ruth the cultural instructions, and Ruth goes at night and basically puts together a unique marriage proposal. Read the commentaries, it's unique. Boaz feels really honored by it. Partly to my thing, he's probably not a duck in some way. But he's a godly man. And he says, okay, sneak out of here so no one sees this. And I'm going to go to the city gates, and I'm going to negotiate and see where we can go. He goes to the city gates, which is where the wise men of the day meet, and he raises the issue. There's these two women that have come back, and Ruth is of marriageable age, and one of us needs to marry her, and one man is closer than I. It's more his right than mine, and the man's willing to do it, except he recognizes if I do that and I produce a child that's going to mess up my inheritance, I'm going to create problems with my and Boaz says, I'll be the man. So Boaz marries Ruth. And Naomi, I forgot to tell this story. Her name means pleasant. And when she came home to Judah, she asked people no longer to call me Naomi, which means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. And she defines her life after losing her husband and her two sons and being poor as a bitter wife. She again says, call me Naomi. My life has been pleasant. And the closing illustrations we have in the book of Ruth is Naomi, the old woman with her grandchild, filling foot with child. Life has been unpleasant. The story goes on, and Ruth has a child, and several generations later, there's a shepherd boy named David, 
And David's mentioned in this genealogy, and he's the ideal king that Israel and the Jews will point to, saying, if we are going to be led by a man who's got a heart after God, it's going to have to be like David. But yet, we have to admit this. We all have a human side to us that has some dark elements to us. And of all the stories in the Old Testament of David, most of them are stories that are heroic stories, the kind of stories that we tell our children as we want to say, these are some values that you need to copy. And then we get to 1 Samuel 11 and 12, and we typically don't tell that story to young people until they're probably in junior high, when they're going to have to wrestle with their sexuality and the darker sides of humanity. The story is told that David, during the spring of the year, when kings usually go out to war, he sends his army and his generals out and he stays in Jerusalem. For me, I think that was the biggest crucial mistake to start with. He chose a life of comfort. He chose to take advantage of all of the fruits of his labor and thinking it's all his instead of God's, and he stayed at home. And he lets somebody else go do the fighting for him. While he's on the top of the, the roof of his palace, he looks down as he's seen the city, and he sees a woman bathing, and her name is Bathsheba, and she's beautiful. And throughout David's life, it seems that he's had almost no control of these impulses of his life. He sends word for her to come to him. There together, she becomes pregnant. But she's married, and this is problematic. Her husband's Uriah, and Uriah is a soldier, and I want to make sure I add this. If you read through the Chronicles account, you'll see Uriah's name pop up a couple of times. And Uriah is, one, he's a very skilled soldier. Two, Uriah is a foreigner, he's a Hittite. He's ethnically similar, kind of more like uh, you know North Dakota to Minnesota, but not like North Dakota to Iowa, if I could say that. But he's ethnically similar, he's a Hittite. But David had a dark political season where there was just him and a few friends running from the king before David became the king. Uriah was one of the men who gathered to David when no one else would gather to him. This is his, one of his most loyal friends that will take risks when no one else will. And David impregnates his, one of his better friends, one of his more loyal friends, one of his more skilled friends of life. Uriah comes home from the battlefield, and David tries several times to get Uriah to go home and be with Bathsheba so that he can create the illusion that the child is Uriah's. When I was in Africa, I remember telling this story and talking about it in a Bible study, and I was with a group of Africans whose culture was one of kings. You know, we have these human nuances of we read the story, then we try to understand what are the details like, and we typically read our culture into it, and sometimes we miss it, but sometimes we get great insight. And some Ugandans whose culture was one of kings said, you know what we think happened? We think Uriah knew. It had been whispered to him. He knew that David had impregnated his wife. And he knew that David had the full authority of the kingdom, that Uriah could not confront him about it. So Uriah refused to go home because he wanted to give David the opportunity to come clean, to repent, 
and somehow heal this broken relationship. The text doesn't quite say that, but after listening to wise African Christian leaders, I think that makes a lot of sense. That makes sense culturally, and that makes sense with how I think God works in our lives. And he looks at our mess, and he tries to think, I want to use humans to redeem things, and we'll sometimes create conversations hoping that redemption will come. I think Uriah is trying to preserve the, the friendship, the kingdom, the honor. But they're going to have to go through an embarrassing and painful conversation to get there. Instead, David plots murder and uses military maneuvers to have his good friend killed. He thinks it's over. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba produces a child. She comes to live in the palace. Everything's going good. And then a crotchety old prophet named Nathan comes to visit David and he brings a story. He says, there's a rich man who had a visitor, and this rich man had so many sheep and cattle and camels and wealth and goats, and there was a poor man who had just one sheep, and when the rich man had a visitor, he went and stole the poor man's sheep and slaughtered it so he could feed his visitor. David's a shepherd king. He still has memories of what it's like to be a teenager out sleeping in the fields, fighting lions and bears to protect those sheep. And when he hears a story like that, he's enraged. He's ready to kill the guy, tear him limb to limb. Nathan says, that's you. And David is broken as his child. The child dies. David repents. There's a healing between David and God, but his family and the kingdom is never the same. Matthew, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when he starts his genealogy, I think he wants to capture everyone's attention. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. He's God made flesh. He wants us to know he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, the anointed one, the hope they've all been waiting for. He wants us to know he's the Son of Abraham. He represents the ideals of our nation. He's the Son of David. He's the ideal king and leader. And he tells us a story with 52 men's names, but he inserts four women. And I think those four women tell us we are pretty messed up. It's how Christmas starts. This hunger for Advent, for God to come near. I'm going to ask that you stand with me. I'm going to read the rest of the story and then make some comments and then we're going to take communion. And honestly, I hope my next few sermons are going to be a little bit more light than this one. But I think Matthew wanted us to realize this is the dynamics. This is what's going on. Holman starts it this way. It says, the nativity of the Messiah. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered that they came together, that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, 
because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was by spoken by the Lord through the prophets. See the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him, and he married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Please be seated. I'm going to try to summarize this text. This is the one you're used to reading when you go to church. This is where we generally start. The story of Jesus Christ's birth, it's this fifth woman who is going to embarrass our expectations. Her name is Mary. She's a virgin teenage bride. And she tells us that God does surprising things to redeem humanity. And even if you're coming in here today in life, like you've heard one of these stories, you're like, oh, this feels kind of similar to me. God does things to redeem humanity. He will do it for you. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 is quoted where it says, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. They will name him Emmanuel. God keeps his word. The prophecies that were made hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus came true. Mary conceives through the Holy Spirit. And even as you say this, we're, we're used to the children's story, but when we're old enough to realize this is how life works, now this is a, an embarrassing story. It's one of those ones that makes you pause and go, did it really happen this way? I, uh, well, I wish I knew what time it was. You guys are paying attention. I'm not hearing crying children. When we were in Uganda, Jan and I did a radio show. I had a, developed a good friend uh, it's shown in, in our radio station named Andrew Wenda. Andrew was not a believer, and he and I were good friends, though, so we used to have a common tradition. During the Easter season, I would go on his show, and he would go on mine, and we'd debate, did Jesus rise from the dead? During the Christmas season, we'd do the same thing, and we would debate, was Jesus born from a virgin? When it came down to facts, I could get the best of him on the resurrection. When it came down to facts, he could get the best of me on the virgin birth, just the facts. And I hope it doesn't sound bad that your pastor admitted that an agnostic friend got the best of me in the debate, but he did. What it would come down to, though, for me was believing that as God entered into this world, he could do individual miracles that might not be seen or documented. I believed in that. And since this was an intimate miracle that Mary received, I could believe that he could do that for anyone. And that would be my closing argument with Andrew, and I'd even tell him, and I believe he could even help you come to believe, my friend, Mr. Andrew. That's the Christmas message with, with this idea of the virgin birth. The angel's message to Mary is, don't be afraid, this is God's work. And he gives several names. Now, Names are a big deal in the Bible. I, I don't know all of you well enough yet to know all the names of your kids. I'm embarrassed. At five weeks, I haven't gotten all your kids' names memorized. I've got to do that. I'll eventually get there. I'm going to bet that most of you have a story about why you chose the name of your child. A few of you might have done it. Oh, you flipped the coin or you pulled the name out of the hat. But most of it, that was something that was very thoughtful. 
Some of you might have pulled out a name from a family member who's passed. Some of you might have found a blessing in the name. There was something that called you to name your child what it was, who, he, who, or she, who she or he is. Names are important. The two names that are given is first Jesus, which the Hebrew would have been Joshua. What literally means is he will save his people from their sins. With our stories or through this genealogy, where Matthew inserts Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, and that's the heritage of the Jewish people. And if we're honest with our extended family stories, we've got names that have the same tone in our extended family. We need Jesus, not just as the name we use at church, but God entering into our life and saving us from our sins. Because they're overwhelming and they're our heritage and they're personal. We need to be saved. Secondly, we need this name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. The religions of the day those that we would say today are pagan or idolatrous. Their typical description of the gods of the day were gods who created the world and then abandoned it and left humanity on its own. And then would kind of manipulate humanity and be cruel to humanity and then would step back. And people would live in fear and they would try to manipulate the gods. The Israelites serve a God who's called Yahweh, which means I am, who's existed from the beginning of creation, before creation, to creation, to all the history of the people, and to a history that has yet to be seen. He's eternal. And he's so different from these gods, and he's so different from our understanding, and an idol could never represent him. How could something a human being made represent this awesome God of creation who's loved us from before time to the end of time? But the one thing, or many things we should know about him, but one that's key, he's Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's not the God that retreats. He's the God that comes close and walks 